Welcome to Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app. You can also tune in on various podcast platforms. We're back up and running live this week. So glad you could join us. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes. You give us a ring at 973-667-1960, 973-667-1960. That's one of two ways here to interact with us over the course of this program. You could also use Twitter, hashtag Giants Chat. You could send in your questions directly to us, at Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. And as you've been doing all throughout the course of the offseason, you can continue to also head to Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions, where you could submit questions. We certainly appreciate it. We've been answering them all along the offseason. We'll continue to do so as we make our way into the start of training camp and the regular season. So, Paul, a lot to tackle over the course of this program. Hope your weekend was restful. How's everything on your end? Doing well, Lance. You know, they say it's always great to be live. Well, it's always great to be alive as well. So thank you so much for being with us today. Indeed. We echo your sentiments. <laughs> and I want to start with some news and notes around the NFL. And this really pertains to the Giants as well, Paul. The fact that the franchise tag deadline to get a long-term deal done with your respective player that you gave the tag to was coming up on Wednesday. We've been talking about this throughout the course of the offseason. The Giants gave the tag to Leonard Williams. He has signed the tag, but they now have about 48 hours to see if they can hammer out a long-term deal. Now, interestingly, ESPN's Adam Schefter tweeted out the following earlier today. I don't think this is a stunning development, but it is important to note, quote, there are 15 tagged NFL players, 14 franchised, one transition. The one transitioned player is, of course, Cardinals running back Kenyon Drake that have until Wednesday to sign long-term deals. And yet there might be one or two deals at most per a league source. The pandemic and lack of financial clarity are crippling hopes for long-term deals. End quote. And Paul, once again, I don't think there's a stunning development. I think we've alluded to this over the last few programs. There's an unknown about the 2021 salary cap. And that means there's an unknown beyond that because we don't know the type of economic hit that the NFL is going to take depending on if they play a full season or there's certain preseason games knocked out and so forth. So I can understand why certain teams are leery of hiring out a long-term deal if they don't know what's going to happen beyond 2020. Well, you know, Lance, the way this whole thing usually goes with these tags, you'll get the guys, you know, tagged early in the spring, and then most of them will wait through the summer, and they'll use the negotiating period to try to get something better, and then if not, okay, they settle for the tag, and that's kind of like the second option. But in this case, because the tags were done at the beginning of the pandemic, and then the whole you know, pandemic took over and just threw chaos into the entire economic system of the league. Now the usual MO gets thrown in the trash because there is no template, if you will, uh, under which negotiations could take place under the tag. So now you're left with a situation where, guess what, fellas, we're throwing up our hands and basically there's really not much to say or do. We're just going to have to move forward with the tag. I do think one of the interesting things that happened, though, uh, you remember Matthew Judon with with the Ravens, yeah. who is that hybrid linebacker slash defensive end, what we call now the edge rusher, that new position that has been basically created by the NFL the last few years. You know, I thought it was really interesting that – he and the Ravens came to a deal whereby they merged and found the midpoint between what the defensive end and what the linebacker tags are supposed to get and said, all right, we'll just meet the middle and that'll be 
that'll be the tag that we sign you for. And everybody walked away happy. It was only a one-year deal, but, but that's what they did. And I wonder if a guy like Leonard Williams with the Giants might not fit into that category. Well, that's a good question. Because, you know, he's a defensive tackle and a defensive end. Exactly, where it's a hybrid type of player. Now, Shaq Barrett belongs in this conversation too, Paul, because the Bucks linebacker is really a pass rusher. He led the NFL with 19 and a half sacks last season. And interestingly, he has signed his tag, but he also has filed a grievance with the NFL Players Association because he's arguing what you just pointed out, the Ravens essentially settled on with Matthew Judon because Judon also is a pass rusher who's labeled as a linebacker. Now, I would argue, Paul, the problem with the franchise tag setup, and I have no problem with the tag. Let me preface my comments. I like the fact that teams have the opportunity to hold on to a very valuable player. I wait a minute. Wait a minute. Time out. Of the NBA. Time yes. out. You are always in favor of the players with free agency and movement and getting the biggest, fattest contracts they can get their hands on. You can't all of a sudden go about face and say you like the tag. That's a generic statement for you are so pro-agent. It's ridiculous. No, I'm in favor of the quarterback market playing out according to plan, which is that every franchise quarterback gets paid. That's always been my point. I didn't say anything about the entire 53-man roster and everybody's going to go on Oh, okay, so you just want the quarterbacks to get all the riches and the heck with everybody else. I understand. I am all about the market following in line with where it is at that specific point. So if one quarterback gets paid, that agent is going to look at how that quarterback got paid for his respective client and follow the lead. That's always been my point. Now, getting back to the point at hand with respect to the franchise tag, they do not classify an outside linebacker and an inside linebacker under the franchise tag, Paul. That's the biggest issue. You're placed under one umbrella, the linebacker position. You know what an inside linebacker is asked to do within a defense is very different than what an outside linebacker is asked to do. So I get where a guy like Shaq Barrett is coming from. I get where Matthew Judon is coming from because if you look at the finances, there's a $2 million difference between the linebacker and the defensive end position. So a player that had 19 and a half sacks last season and certainly is entering the prime of his career and is in a good system wants to be paid accordingly. I don't blame him. Mm -hmm. So I think what they need to certainly try to tweak is maybe there should be a pass rusher franchise tag where then you could put a defensive end under that and you could put a linebacker under that based on the level of productivity that the player has shown over the last few seasons. Or maybe they need to have an average sack total or pressure total over the span of three seasons. When you meet that threshold, then you get the label of pass rusher. See, I would go a lot further than that. I think that the tag system as it's currently constructed is so outdated it's not even funny. The National Football League has become such a league of specialists. For example, you have one tag for the offensive line. Seriously, Lance. Yeah. Centers, guards, and tackles are all under one tag? That's ridiculous. What what about wide receiver? you got slot receivers who totally play a different position, and they will tell you that it's a different position and that, oh, they're so specialized that they play that position better than anybody else. But then when it comes to the receiver tag, everybody's lopped into the big apple cart. So it's as far as I'm concerned, the entire tag system needs to be overhauled and more specified 
to the positions that we now have in today's game, which unfortunately, okay, because of the system that we now that we still have in place, has rendered it totally worthless, in my opinion. Well, I think that's a fair point. My issue is it becomes a big gray area if you're talking about a lot of specification, as you pointed out, because I would be concerned about a player who's in the slot is going to start going to his coach and saying, hey, I'm in a contract year. I may be given the franchise tag. You're going to have to use me differently so that my value can go up. So that's why, Paul, instead of where you play, I'm more in favor of letting the production dictate the contract. And that's why, just like, for example, how is the franchise tag calculated? Well, the franchise tag is calculated by taking the average of the top five players' cap percentages for the current season or 120% of the player's previous salary. So it's going based on statistics and finances. That's how the tag should exist. So if you want the pass rusher label, Paul, you have to prove to me that you've had X amount of QB pressures, X amount of sacks over the course of a three-year period or something like that. Wide receiver, I don't care whether you're in the slot or the outside, Paul. Show me what you've done. How many receptions, receiving yards, take the average of that. Then I don't think you're going to get into arguments of a player saying, I'm getting into a contract year and arguing, well, this team is purposely lining me up in the slot so they don't have to pay me X amount of dollars. Okay, so now what are you going to do with the offensive line and what are you going to do with the no- Nose tackle in a 3-4 compared to a defensive tackle in a 4-3. How are you going to justify those positions based on stats? Well, that's much more complicated. Uh-huh. I think you that's think fair. so? But, but I also think that there is a way to analyze offensive linemen in terms of film study and in terms of protection, how many sacks are given up the team, how it performed from a run-standing standpoint. Okay, so now we're going to get the analytics people involved in, in contracts and, and worth and value. Boy, that's a really slippery slope, okay? A well, really but I think that slope. at least the analytics are based on facts and fundamentals as opposed to arguing a player played X amount of snaps in the slot versus the outside, Paul, and that should yeah, justify Lance, his value. Yeah, but whose analytics are you going to go by? You're going to go by by some You're going to tell me, hold on, NFL, office, no, no, you know, NFL teams don't have their own analytics? You're going to tell me there's not people in their own well, department? Well, here's the problem. Some, some, a lot of teams, in fact, if not all of them, subscribe to these services. And you and I both know, and even those people admit to the fact, that they don't always know what's going on on the play. So they even say it. They don't publicize it a whole lot, but they know that there is a tremendous amount of percentages of error in in their numbers because they can't even identify what was asked or who made the the, the mental mistake the mistake specifically. The analytics don't take into account guys who played hurt. It doesn't take us. There is so much. If I'm a if I'm an agent or a player, and I'm going to take their side on this one. There is so much that analytics cannot tell you. If you're going to grade my salary value and my tag value based on somebody's analytics, you can flush that in the toilet. I'm well, not first the of least all, bit interested. I would argue the union and the league would have to agree on an analytics program or individual across the board, first of all. It wouldn't be where one team subscribes to this philosophy and another team subscribes to another. It would have to be a negotiated part of the CBA. I would have to have that first in place. So if the union and the players can agree with the league side in terms of a common either company or individual, then I don't really think it's an issue. But once again, I would say productivity, Paul, is a better gauge 
of the value of a contract than where a guy lines up. That I have a much bigger issue. What are you going to do with the strong safety and the free safety? You got a strong safety who on one team he's playing inside the box. He's got 130 tackles because he's a pseudo linebacker, but he's really nothing more than a strong safety playing down. I mean, all of a sudden now you look at the tags, a safety's a safety. So now if you're going to base it on numbers, well, guess what? The strong safety is always going to have more tackles because he's always in the box. That doesn't mean he was more productive than the free safety. It just means he was put in position where he's got to make more tackles. You're going to give him a tag based on the number of tackles he had. You're basically basing it on, on a fallacy. It doesn't mean he was any more productive than the other guy, but he's got better numbers. So he's going to get more money? Why? Well, it would be more than, of course, just tackling. I mean, let's put things in perspective here. That's not the only way you analyze a safety, in all fairness. So it's not just well, going to be, okay, you, this guy led you the pointed team in tackles, out the let's give him X amount of dollars. You were giving me wide receivers in the slot, and you're telling me, oh, he's got to be in the slot, and he's going to catch this many balls, and that's going to be a problem now because he's not playing the same receiver spot. It's no different than the safeties. The two safeties have starkly different roles on many teams. And I agree. No disagreement there. I'm not disputing that. I'm just saying that productivity, if it can be analyzed in a fair manner where the union and the league agree, I think that would be a stronger backing to specify franchise tags is all I'm saying, as opposed to simply going based on where a guy lines up. Because where a guy lines up is not necessarily indicative of how productive of a player he is. I think and also it's going to vary from scheme to scheme in fairness too. There's no doubt. There's no doubt. The, the problem is that the tag list, the way it is constructed today, is outdated. And it does need to be revised. Now, how you or I would revise it, we could probably talk for five hours about trying to tweak and twist and change the different requirements and the different measurements. But the bottom line is the list as it stands now is just not good enough. And, it, and as far as I'm concerned, it it's, does more damage than good, to be honest with you. Well, I think that's been brought to light based on Shaq Barrett's file grievance. The fact that the guy that led the league in sacks is still labeled as a linebacker and there's no differential between inside and outside shows there's an issue. And also, it shows inconsistency across the board. To your point, Paul, when the Ravens already worked out a deal with Matthew Judon, which is where they sort of found the middle ground between the linebacker tag and the defensive end tag, yet Shaq Barrett's in a completely different story because of how the Bucks view him. So once again, I'm all about consistency across the board. If you're going to find the middle ground between one player who's that hybrid type, the other player who is a similar position should be treated the same way. So that's why I think it's important to note this, but when it's all said and done, just be aware there may not be a lot of long-term deals that are hammered yeah. out between now and Wednesday's deadline simply because not necessarily there's an issue over how players are labeled. It's just the economic landscape right now of the NFL is very much up in the air, Paul, and that cannot be overlooked. No, I don't think there's any question about that. And by the way, just because we want to give careful consideration to our partner Jeff Eagles, the punter and the kicker are under the same tag on that same <laughs> list as well. And that's certainly, under no circumstances, should that be the case. And that's another reason why. Productivity and specification, I think, is important to note. And I'm wondering whether or not this would be something that would come up in a future CBA negotiation. Now, I say that on the heels that they just hammered out a 10-year new CBA, Paul, right before the pandemic. So highly (laughs) unlikely we're going to see a drastic change, to be fair. But here's the other issue, why it's hard, I would argue, for 
issues surrounding the franchise to be franchise tag to be squared away. Think about the percentage of players, Paul, that the franchise tag impacts. We're talking about 15 players mm-hmm. that were hit with the franchise tag or the transition tag in a body of 32 teams times 53 players. You add the practice squad on hundreds of players. So yes. this is why it's hard to negotiate this in terms of the union when only a small percentage of players at the end of the day, Paul, are actually impacted by the tags. No, that's very true. And as a result, you probably would have a lot of union members who really wouldn't care too much about it, figuring that they would never even see the light of day in those kinds of conversations. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live, up and running live again at noon Eastern each day. Telephone number 973-667-1960. You can also submit your questions to us directly on Twitter. At Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. Let's open up the phone lines in a little bit. We'll also get to the rankings that ESPN just laid out in terms of the top offensive personnel groupings. And interesting spot where the Giants wound up. Charlie is in Portland, Maine. Charlie, it's nice that we get you out of the way early. What's happening? <laughs> hey, Lance. Hey, Paul. Hi. Hey, uh, just, just to chime in on this a little bit, how about doing this on the franchise tag? Yeah, I think this would be good for the players and it would also be good for the teams. How about if you sign a guy long-term to give the incentive to sign him, the, the, whatever the salary is that first year, it does not count against the cap. So what happens is the team gets a benefit, the player gets a benefit because he's got a long-term deal, and you can stop all the craziness about the stupid, you know, tag. You know, it would benefit both to get a long-term deal done. Well, because you're looking at it more from the benefit of the team perspective. Similar to in the NBA, they have what's called the Larry Bird rule, where a team can go over the cap to retain one of its best players. So that's what it sounds like you're proposing. Well, it's good for the player, too, because he wants a he wants a long-term deal to begin with. He doesn't want to play for one year. Yeah, but the so long-term deal from the player's perspective still doesn't change the inner workings and the finances. So the player basically is saying, well, my contract year one's not going to count against the cap, so it helps out the team. But I really don't see how it benefits him in the long run, though. Well, it benefits him because it gives the team the leverage to say, okay, I should get this done because then that's going to help my club. With a salary cap. If I don't, I'm going to have like a 16, 17 million hit this year. So to me, that's helping them and it's helping the player. Hmm. Charlie, this this uh, this needs to be chewed on for a while. I don't know chewed that I have on. an immediate reaction. I think this reaction. needs to be thrown in the disposal. Are you kidding me? <laughs> no, I don't have an immediate reaction to it. I really don't. I, I, I do applaud right, do the creativity because I, I do think that, you know, anything that allows teams to – hold on to and uh, retain their best players is a good thing because that's what the fabric of the NFL should be all about. I'm very much against, as you know, the the free agency as it was established when they got rid of the cap in 94 or 93 and it went into place in 94. So anything we could do to turn that clock back is certainly going to be applauded by me. And one other thing, Lance, I think it was you. You were talking about Cincinnati Bengals and you had somebody on and then – at the end, you said, you know, it would be better to play Burrow and the Cincinnati on the 12th game because we'll have some film, film on him. I think that's totally crazy. You'd rather play him the first game when he doesn't know what he's doing 
and the offensive line isn't in sync, and he's not in sync with his receivers and because of the pandemic. Wouldn't you rather play him the first game? Well, first of all, you're making assumptions that he's not in sync. Number one, it was made clear that the Bengals gave him the playbook months before they even drafted him because they knew they were going to take him, and he's already been ahead of the game, number one. You're operating under a big assumption, and you could argue that, yeah, maybe he's not in sync with the rest of his team, but there's still the land of the unknown from the Giants' perspective. They still wouldn't know what they're expecting in terms of the look of the offense. Burrow's never been on an NFL field. He's never been within the Bengals' offense. You're going to tell me that Zach Taylor's going to use him the same exact way that LSU's offense operated? So you have just as much of an unknown from the Giants' perspective. No, that's not true. Don't you think he's going to have more experience by the 12th game and he's actually not going to even be a rookie by then? And to play him on the first game when he's a rookie and he hasn't seen the defenses that he's going up against, I mean, to me, it's a no-brainer. You'd want to play him the first game, not the 12th. You know, Charlie, most coaches will tell you they would like the opportunity to get some type of, of trend off of a guy's tape. They would tell you that if they had their druthers uh, between having the complete unknown or having some type of trend, they would rather have the trend. So that would be number one. Number two, the, the Bengals are using a different scheme this year anyway. So what, what, good, is, what good is looking well, at no, anything? Well, no, Zach Taylor's still there. Their head coach is still there. And their offensive coordinator, Brian Callahan. No, but they're, they're going to run different stuff with Well, Burrow. yeah, they may run different stuff, but the coaching don't, don't. staff hasn't changed. No, no, and but they're going to run the it. personnel around the quarterbacks returning, too. Yeah, but you don't, you don't draft Joe Burrow after what he did at LSU and not try to take a lot of that playbook with you. You don't. You're not, you're not going to take him number one overall unless you're going to wind up incorporating a huge chunk of what he did so well. I think so it could well be a mix. When he, I think it'll be well, a little bit of mix. Yeah, it'll be a mix, but it's going to be much more of a mix than it was the same. Trust me. I mean, it's just, the guy threw 50 it, touchdown I mean, passes last year. They're going to do a lot of what he greatest college football seasons right. in the history of the game. Yeah. So if they, don't, if they don't incorporate a ton of what he did, then why did they take him? Exactly. They'll know what he's going to be doing. Just like, just like uh, you know, Daniel Jones has never had Garrett at his offensive coordinator. Like, like people aren't going to know that, that. I would rather play him the first week than the 12th week because he'll know the offense that much better by then. Have experience. Have yeah, but experience the, again, Charlie, leaders. you will also see some trends that yeah. he will have put on exactly. tape by then. So on in that point, I totally agree with Lance. I and you'll see what other teams, on. by the way, do against no him. Absolutely. That's another key trend Absolutely. that you want to see. Not so just that, what the offense of the Bengals does, but how defenses react to what the Bengals do. On that half of the point, Lance is right for a change. Well, listen, I'm not looking for brownie points like Charlie, so I'm not going to lose sleep over what you think of my it's opinions. Okay. It's we okay. got rid of Charlie and all of that, so that to me there is mission accomplished right there. So all right. thank you for agreeing with me from that standpoint. Hey, Anything hey, to free open the line and get rid of Charlie, I'm all for it. I'm with you. Hey, listen, by the way, you were talking about the franchise tags and guys getting signed just before we went on the air. Jeff Okuda agreed to a rookie deal with the Detroit Lions. And why is that relevant? Well, because he was the third overall pick in the draft. The Giants picked Andrew Thomas number four. So another domino in the list of first-round draft picks has fallen and, and agreed to a deal. I think there's like six of them now. I haven't seen the updated list this morning. But he being number three and Thomas being number four, that's the closest guy to Thomas that has actually come to terms. 
Well, and also keep in mind, they've revamped the rookie scale in the years since. So it's not as crazy with the holdouts as we've seen in the past, Mm -hmm. Paul, where you really can hold out and get a lot done in terms of leverage because with the new CBAs in recent history, they've been more specified in terms of where you're drafted, the allotment of money. So, you know, the land of the unknown is not there, but point well taken in terms of maybe it provides a driving force moving forward. I think most important to what you pointed out is it just goes to show you so many months have gone by with these Zoom meetings and off-the-field activities that we forget. A lot of guys haven't passed their physicals, Paul. So yeah. we don't know how that's going to end up. I mean, for example, a player shows up, he's not in great shape. Team could turn around and say, hey, you know, we're going to rip up the contract, move on. So we forget about that. We forget about the fact that you're right. Tons of rookies have yet to sign their contracts. So all of these economic factors, to your point, Paul, are complementing the unknown in terms of what's going to happen on the field. You know, can you imagine a couple of these rookies coming in, and I'll say high-profile guys in particular. I'm not so much talking about some of the later-round picks. But a high-profile guy comes in, and as it turns out, he wasn't conditioning properly. And he's really not at all in shape. Or for that matter, maybe had an injury he was hiding and was hoping he'd be healthy by the time he got here. And now he takes his physical, and the team says, hey, wait a minute, you're not football-ready. Jeez, oh, oh my goodness. The GM is going to be pounding his fist against the desk. Well, and that's why for months when the Giants announced deals, what did we emphasize on this very program? The agreement is in place pending a physical. And Mm -hmm. every team pretty much puts similar language into their press releases because they know that there's that caveat. If, to your point, Paul, they do not come back 100%, in shape or they look like a different human being that the team's got some wiggle room to certainly get out of that contract. Let's head back to the phone lines at 973-667-1960. Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino with you here on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Jake is in Rochester, and he joins us here on the program. What's happening, Jake? Hey, fellas. I got uh, two questions for you today. Um, The first is a debate that me and my dad have all the time. Um, I think it's fair to say that uh, we're a year away from from really being in playoff contention. Um, you know, the defense still needs some pieces. The offense is still missing some key components. Um, so I am on the side of, you know, maybe win a couple less games to get a better draft pick. Um, I know Paul probably won't like this take, but uh, <laughs> my dad's on the side of win as many, win as many games as he can. Um, but, you know, you look at last year and that, that game versus Washington – really affected our draft pick. Um, so that's the first one. And the second one, I talked to um, John and uh, – sorry. Yeah, John and Jeff about uh, uh, Justin Britt, and I was wondering if I could get your guys' take on maybe signing him as a low-risk, high-reward kind of deal to get some veteran presence in the center position. Well, in terms of, first of all, the point about – win as many games versus lose games to get a better draft position. What I would argue, Jake, is while, yes, that Redskins game, Washington game, excuse me, they did officially announce they're changing their name today uh, with respect to the draft position, it's all about what you do with the draft pick, Jake, at the end of the day. Now, you could argue, could the Giants have used Chase Young? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. But there have been plenty of other teams that have drafted late in the first round that have gotten 
Big-time playmakers. Derwin James fell to the Chargers in the first round a few years ago. Darius Leonard went to the Colts high in the second round. And those guys, you could argue, have outperformed players that were selected much higher. So, you know, this whole debate about, well, you shouldn't win as many games simply so you could pick high, I think is just a wasted activity when it's all about, did you do your homework? Did your scouting department show that there's more than just one player that can make an impact in terms of the draft class, Paul? I might also add, in reference to his other point about Britt, you know, we just had Softy Mailer from KJR Radio on the other day when we did the Seahawks preview on Friday's BBKL, and he could not say enough about the question marks along that Seahawks offensive line, specifically the two guards and the center spot. So, you know, let, let's get real. I mean, the Seahawks let him walk, and that is the biggest question mark on their team as Russell Wilson is now on the other side of 30. And as a softy mailer said, it's going to take its toll. This guy gets sacked over 40 times every single season. And so you want to bring him in thinking he's the answer and is going to be a significant upgrade over what you have. I'm not so sure that he is. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. Um, do I have time for one more? Sure. Real quick. Okay. Um, so Paul probably won't like this one either, but uh, me and my dad have gone back and watched. Um, Just remember, your dad's always right because he's older than you are. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, he'll <laughs> love to hear that one. Um, uh, we've been watching the All or Nothing from the Cowboys to get a, a taste of what Jason Garrett might look like with us. Um, and, you know, Derek Dooley was their wide receivers coach, um, and they had Des Bryant at the time um, and seemed to, to handle his personality pretty well. Um, do you think bringing in someone like Antonio Brown or Des Bryant would make any sense? Again, I know we're a year away or two, so it might not make a ton of sense to make that kind of move right now, but just wondering what your opinion on that would be. Well, I don't think that's happening, and appreciate the phone call, Jake. I don't think that the Giants are an organization that's going to take a flyer on Antonio Brown. And as far as Des Bryant is concerned, Paul, to me it goes back to, you know, right now on paper, the Giants have Sterling Shepard, Golden Tate, and they've got Darius Slade and penciled in as their top three guys. We've talked about some of the other guys behind that, a Corey Coleman, for example, who I think still has value. He needs to prove he could stay healthy, but when given chances, he's proven to be productive. So even if you were to entertain the idea of an Antonio Brown and a Des Bryant, okay, let's play the hypothetical game that the caller just threw out. Are those long-term answers? Are those guys that you're building your offense around for two, three years beyond 2020? No. My argument would be you'd bring them in for a year, and then you'd see what happened, and then for all we know, you'd move beyond them after 2020. So if the goal is to build continuity, and to the caller's point, you want to get back into playoff contention, getting back into playoff contention is not we borrow a guy for a season, we see what he could do for our offense, and then we move on from him. The goal is you bring in a younger group of players, you then groom them so that over the course of two to three years, they're on the same page with, by the way, the young quarterback, and you get to the level that by the time three or four years are by, that everybody's on the same page, everybody has a good grasp of the offense, and then you bring in complimentary free agents here or there. I just don't think that helps the development overall of this team right now. You know, what you do when you're at this particular stage of a reconstruction like the Giants are, you go back to the Parcells theory, and our caller can ask his father about this too. You bring in the hold-the-fort guys. That is, you're going to go for the complimentary veteran-free agents who are really good character guys, who are pros-pros, who set a great example of teamwork and an effort in the locker room, who have the right mentality – 
those are the kinds of guys you're going to bring in for one year because they can help create the influence and the type of atmosphere that you want in the locker room, understanding that they may not be around the next year, but they will have already impacted your team and set them on the right course. Those are the kinds of, of veteran free agents you want to sign when you're at this level of reconstruction. Now, when you're next to contending ship, when you're right up there near the top level, and, oh, my God, I'm one player away. Well, now you take a chance on signing one of those big names who might have some baggage because maybe that's the guy that puts you over the top to win the title. But that's not where the Giants are right now, so I would totally disagree with signing any of those premier names. Yeah, I think you got to look at the makeup of the team and where the team is and not just necessarily have that fantasy football mindset more often than not, which is let me just pluck off the star player on the free agent market, drop him into the team, and you know everything's going to be great. The chemistry development, I think, is a big part of the conversation. The other thing that I wanted to add on to the center question about Justin Britt, I think it's also important to note, Paul, we don't know what's going to happen with training camp, the start of the regular season, but the clock is ticking. And what I mean by that, Spencer Pulley, and if they do bring back Jalapio, those guys at least have some physical reps at this stage and where we are in the offseason with your guards. And if you're going to talk about bringing in a brand new center, and yes, the scheme has changed. There's a new offensive line coach. I get that. But Justin Britt does not have any physical reps with either of the guards right now who are penciled in in terms mm-hmm. of Hernandez and Zeitler. Do you really want to go down that road that you're experimenting with a new center who has yet to hand the ball off to Daniel Jones, and on top of that, a center that does not have a feel for the right guard or the left guard? I would say, based on the timeline we're dealing with right now, I think that's extremely dangerous territory. Well, if I could throw another log onto your fire there, Lance. Remember, last summer, uh, who did Daniel Jones work with at center? Spencer Pulley because Jalapio was was the guy who was a little bit ahead of that depth chart in terms of being the starter. So Eli Manning was the starter, so he had Jalapio. Yeah. So even though Daniel Jones was getting some first-team reps, you know, he was getting a ton of backup reps, which meant he was getting reps with Pulley most of the summer. And then what happened the first month of the season? Well, you know, we saw the first couple weeks, Eli was the starter, right? Well, that meant Spencer Pulley was snapping the ball to Daniel Jones at practice. So when you talk about the centers on the Giants roster today, and we could even throw P.O. in there if you want to. I know he's not signed at the moment. But Spencer Pulley has given more snaps to Daniel Jones than anybody else on that Giants offensive line. And that goes back to my chemistry point. No, I think that's a great point. And the other thing that I want to add to what you're saying, because I know a lot of people are probably thinking, well, wait a minute, hold on. The Giants claimed Spencer Pulley off of waivers right before the 2018 season started, and then he eventually took over at the starting center spot. First of all, he only took over the starting center spot because Jalapio went down against the Cowboys early in the season. If you notice, though, they did not immediately, Paul, insert Pulley into the starting lineup because Jalapio at that point had a lot more work, knew the scheme during the course of the offseason. And once again, Pulley was only thrown in in a baptism-by-fire type of mentality because the Giants were forced into that situation as a result of injury. And when you have an injury, hey, all bets are off at that point. But if Jalapio stays healthy, he doesn't break his leg against the Cowboys, Jalapio is still your center. They mm-hmm. weren't certainly going to make a change that early in the season. No, I don't think that was going to happen either. So, you know, hey, the bottom line is this. 
the Giants are going to go into this training camp, I believe, trying to give Pulley some competition, hoping that Lemieux can come quickly. I don't necessarily know if that's going to happen, but they certainly are going to give him an opportunity to compete at the spot. They'll find out if P.O. is physically capable of competing for the spot, and perhaps Nick Gates will continue to take some snaps at center, and maybe even Kyle Murphy, that guy that uh, that uh, Charlie likes from Rhode Island, who I understand he's got some versatility. He's been a, was a tackle up there at uh, with the Rams, but I understand there's also a possibility that he could take some snaps at center. So the Giants will do what they can to sort through this, but I don't think you're going to get anybody coming in on a white horse at the last minute to try to claim the position. No, not at all. I don't know why you had to then throw in the little – tidbit that the guy that Charlie likes because every listener then is going to say that no disrespect to Kyle Murphy but he's going to have no credibility whatsoever (laughs) given Charlie's track record especially with offensive linemen so I think you killed your whole point there Paul by having to throw that in you were fine with your point until you then solidified it with that statement never used the guy that Charlie likes as the icing on your no, cake. Come on. Yeah, you would I, think you would uh, learn that after all these years. Uh, I'm second-guessing myself now. Yes, okay. <laughs> I hope that sinks in. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettina with you here on Monday's uh, edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We've been focusing on the franchise tag, weighing in on the outlook of the season with respect to the Giants. And that also brings us to, and let me preface this statement. I hate rankings, okay, Paul? I yes, despise so do rankings. I. Okay? But with that being said, The Giants have an interesting spot on this list, so it's perhaps worth at least bringing up. Not overanalyzing, but bringing up. Mm -hmm. Bill Barnwell of ESPN put together a laundry list of all all 32 teams, and he used specific criteria, by the way, which is another reason why I'm not a fan of this list. He is eliminating the quarterback and the offensive line from this conversation, which I think is impractical because I think if you're going to analyze an offense, you have to consider those two positions. With that being said, Paul and I didn't make up this list, but if we're going to go over the rankings before we get phone calls and tweets on the subject, I'm going to make sure, Paul, I go over the entire criteria because I don't want to hear any complaints, okay? Well, you know I'm a stickler for that. Yeah. The offensive line and the quarterback is not taken into consideration with this list. That's the first thing to note. Number two, contract value he did not take into consideration, meaning it's only about what he sees in the player moving forward, not necessarily whether or not you're getting bang for your buck. That's also important. 2020, the outlook is what he's taking into consideration, meaning he's not thinking about what the player did in 19 or whether or not they're a rookie and they have yet to play an NFL game. All things, once again, I'm throwing out here because you have to keep this in the back of your mind. Wide receivers matter more than other positions. He's bringing that to the table. So he put a little bit more value in that in terms of the receiving cores versus the running backs and the tight end. Also, top-level talent, he's making the point, is worth more than depth. I disagree with that. So he's looking at the guys that start and get the most snaps as opposed to who's playing Paul behind them Mm -hmm. in the event of injury, which you know happens more often than not. So that's the criteria that he utilized. Okay, as far as the NFC East, Washington is dead last, 32nd. Philadelphia is the next team in terms of the NFC East rankings. And Philadelphia starts what is a trend here for the NFC East. The Eagles came in at 10th. The Giants, interestingly, came in at 7th. And the Cowboys have the highest slot at 3rd. Now, let's focus on the Giants here. His reasoning for the Giants at 7 
He says that Daniel Jones wasn't able to get his five key weapons, Saquon Barkley, Evan Ingram, Golden Tate, Sterling Shepard, Darius Slayton, on the gridiron together for a single snap in 2019. And we've emphasized that a lot on this program. He also points out that Jones dropped back 77 times with only Shepard missing from that bunch and posted a passer rating of 100.7, 13 points higher than his season-long total. Now, I want to stop right there, Paul, and I'll let you chime in. See, this is already where the list loses credibility in my mind. And I'm saying that even with the Giants ranked pretty high. How can you claim that you're not taking the quarterback of the offensive line into consideration? And then one of your first selling points to me is that Jones dropped back 77 times and had a passer rating of 100.7 with those dropbacks. Doesn't that defeat the purpose of telling me you're not considering the quarterback in all of this? You know, Lance, I'm with you. I have a great deal of difficulty with the criteria, whether it's the criteria he's placed on the list or the criteria he's left off the list. Because quite frankly, okay, when you look at the track record of the Giants, and I know you haven't gotten to the Giants, but I'm going to use them as the example because I think it's very clear. You look at Evan Ingram, who has played 34 games in three seasons, and Sterling Shepard, who has played 53 games in four seasons. Now you're suddenly going to tell me you're going to make this list up and assume both guys are going to play a full 16-game schedule? How could you possibly do that based on their track record? So to me, you have to take into account the injury factor, and then that leads to slamming the criteria that he put forth and you've already taken a shot at which is he thinks that the starters are more important than the guys on the depth chart. Yeah. How can you do that? Plus, the reason why is Philadelphia, of all teams, let's keep it in the division. This is a team that went out and won a Super Bowl a few years ago, and they lost half of their top talent that year, Paul. They lost Jason Peters, their starting left tackle. They lost their starting quarterback. They went through a bunch of running backs. They lost their starting middle linebacker in Jordan Hicks and his backup, the starting kicker. I don't want to bore our listeners. I could give you a laundry list of all Mm -hmm. the guys they lost, yet they still won the biggest prize of all, the Lombardi Trophy. So... This is another reason why, and and I'm bringing this up more so to maybe, your, your point is exactly right, to take shots at these rankings and these lists, which I can't stand. Because I understand we're desperate, we're yearning for content, we're looking to rip things to pieces. He just gave us something to talk about, Lance. Well, there you go. Maybe I did. So maybe I thank him for explaining his rationale, which makes absolutely no sense. He allowed us to stall till the next call came in. (laughs) Well, there you go. But it's just... It's just more of the fact that fans take some of these rankings to heart, Paul. And I don't think people are looking at the criteria. And the more and more you peel back the layers of the onion, as you like to say, Paul, you start Mm -hmm. to realize there's not a great deal of substance behind these rankings. No, and that's the case with probably 98% of the rankings that you will read online or in a paper or in a magazine. That's just the way it's going to be because people put the rankings out there simply to talk about. Yeah. They're, they're not really digging in and trying to be serious about it and trying to truly chew on the, on, on the meat and the potatoes and say, listen, this is what I really believe. That's not what they're there for. These, these things are cotton candy is what they are, Lance. Let's head back to the phone lines at 973-667-1960. 973-667-1960. Peter is in the Florida Keys, and he joins us on Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. What's happening, Peter? Gentlemen, how you guys doing today? Hi. Doing all right. What's on your mind? I hope you're well in Florida, my friend. Things are not very uh, good down there, are they? 
Oh, it's awful. It's really, really bad. Down here in the Keys, they're actually talking about putting up a roadblock so so tourists can't come in. So we're just hunkering down. It's pretty, my oh my. Right Stay now. well. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so a couple of quick questions for you guys. First question, I wanted to talk to you about the, the uh, defense for this year. Now, I'm trying to wrap my head around this whole situation. Uh, Coach Spectre last year kind of struggled. He's out of a job with the Giants. And a lot of it, in my opinion, has to do with he had a very young defense. He was trying to mold, and he made the scheme and the system very, very complicated. You know, uh, week 10, week 11, there were interviews that some of the defensive players, not just Baker, were saying that it was complicated. And I love that Castillas interview where he stated that you got to keep it simple, stupid. Now, the thing that I'm struggling with is that Joe Judge is coming in as a first-year coach, and our new defensive coordinator, it seems like the, the mantra, the image that I'm interpreting is that the defense is going to be multiple. So one week it could be a 4-3, another week could be a 3-4, and it's going to constantly change based on the weaknesses of the offense that they're going to be playing the, the subsequent weeks and not necessarily the strength of the team. So if you're going to play multiple and you're going to switch schemes frequently from week to week, that's not keeping it simple stupid. That's ultra complicated, in my opinion. And I'm not a coach or anything, but... I would think that, you know, the, the two ideas are contradictory. Okay, if I, if I could try to answer that one, and I know it's going to be a little bit complicated, but I think there are two uh-huh. points here to be made. Number okay. one, I think this particular coaching staff, up and down the line, are more teacher-oriented coaches than the staff that the Giants had in the past. And I do think that there's something to be said for that, especially when you have a group of young guys like the Giants have, especially on defense. It is important that they are more teacher-oriented type of coaches. So I think that's the first point that probably has to be made. The second point I think that you can make is, while I understand that a multiple defense, and I call it Belichick's chameleon defense, which is going to be a lot of what, what Graham does, I do believe, I think the difference here is that you have some coaches who will say, okay, this is what I'm going to do, and it could be multiple, and I'm going to be real stubborn about it, and I'm just going to say, I don't care if these guys can do it or not. I'm just going to implement my X's and O's, my game plan, my scheme, and I'm not going to give enough consideration to what the players' skill sets are and what it is that they're capable of doing. Because remember, the best coaches, and coordinators are included in this same, uh, same example that I'm going to give you, the best coaches not only understand what the blueprint should be to give your guys the best chance to win, but they also understand how to adapt that blueprint to the skills that your guys can put on the field. You have to understand what they're capable of and say, okay, given what they can do, how can we find a way for their abilities 
to match up with the end game of what I've put into my blueprint. And I think you're going to see a much more um, flexible type of, of defensive coaching style with Patrick Graham and his guys. That's my opinion. It could turn out that way. It could not turn out that way. We will only have to wait and see. But I hope those two things kind of give you a little bit of a better feel about where, where I think I'm going with this. Well, and the other thing okay. that I think can't be dismissed is the fact that Patrick Graham, Peter, is coming from a Dolphins team, remember, which was plagued by injuries last season. He loses his top safety and Minka Fitzpatrick, who they traded to the Steelers early in the season. Xavier Howard, his top corner, is put on IR in October. If you remember, when they played the Giants, he was grabbing guys off the street and the practice squad yeah. to insert into his defense. Now, was Miami a top defense last year? No, that's not why I'm bringing up. My point is he dealt with a lot of young players. He dealt with a lot of movable parts, and he's also been in the NFL for quite some time. So I think you're talking about, to Paul's point, a coach that's been exposed to a lot of different looks and a lot of different personalities. And I think if anybody has done a good job or an effective job in adapting to the skill sets and strengths of his players, it's probably been Patrick Graham. Now, you could have the blueprint that is just dynamic and crazy and have big goals and expectations, but any good coach is going to have to say, hey, I still need to tweak and adjust my game plan to what my players can do. And Patrick Graham, in fairness... Peter, he's not going to know that until he gets these guys on the field. You know, right now, he's only judging them through Zoom meetings, and he's getting a good taste of their mental fortitude, but it's a lot different in terms of what they bring to the field. So I wouldn't get too caught up in the talking right now, the look of a scheme. I think it's all going to come down to when these players step on the field, what he sees that they can do, and whether or not he's willing and effectively capable of making adjustments week in and week out. That's going to be the true test. And I really do think also a number of coaches on this giant staff have NCAA experience, yeah. which we all know means they've dealt with the younger athletes before they got into the pro game when they are going to have to do more teaching than not. And that experience for those coaches is also one of the reasons why I believe people around the league look at the giant staff and say, my God, look at this. Look, look what Judge Judge did. He put together a murderous row of a coaching staff because these guys not only know what they're doing, they're very respected, they've been around a long time, and they're teachers. That's that's a really nice combo. Great responses, guys. Thank you very much. Hey, you got I it, Peter, and thank you for the phone call. And stay safe in Florida. Appreciate you tuning in and weighing in. Paul, I'm glad you brought up the coaching aspect. I wanted to bring it up on this very program because I was having this conversation on one of my serious shows. We've been talking about so much if a player catches the coronavirus, what happens? Hopefully some flexibility with the practice squad. You know what hasn't been discussed enough? What happens if a coach catches the coronavirus? What mm -hmm. happens if your offensive coordinator catches the virus, your DC? And then what happens in terms of if you have to remove that coach from the mix for two weeks or so, who's calling plays? The reason why I'm glad you brought that up is this is where how Joe Judge put his staff together I think could benefit him immensely. If you look at coaching staffs right now, I don't know if you're going to find as many guys with previous head coaching experience than you will with respect to the Giants. Think about this. Jason Garrett, former head coach, who also has talented calling plays and experience. Freddie Kitchens, 
Short stint, but he's been a head coach. He also has been a play caller, just to keep in mind. Brett Bielema, who you were referencing in terms of NCAA experience, he's been a head coach. Derek Dooley, he's been a head coach. Mm -hmm. And Burns, the running backs coach, has been the associate head coach under Saban for years at Alabama. So could that prove to be an advantage for the Giants if, God forbid, they are thrown a curveball? Something to at least think about. Yeah, I don't think it hurts them. Let's put it that way. Yeah. How much it helps, I don't know the answer to that. But I, it's not a bad thing. And, and I will say this, again, remember the structure that Judge is going to implement, which comes from that whole Belichick, Saban, Parcells kind of tree. Well, all of these guys, from, for the most part, most of these guys, have had exposure to that specific type of philosophy. And that in itself is really good because he's not, he's not just got guys on his staff who are quality football guys, who have been around a while. No, these are guys who understand the very specifics of what his philosophy is coming from, which means that at any given time, if he has to lean on one of these guys more so than another time, he should be able to do it. He'll feel comfortable doing it, and they should not feel uncomfortable taking those reins if they have to. Because this is an ideal staff where you say, hey, I can oversee, but I don't need to micromanage because a lot of these guys have been on their own islands before running their own team. So I think that's a positive. But once again, I don't think enough people are thinking about it. And I know that the NFL at least has been having these conversations. The players are not certainly losing sleep over it. But there needs to be protocols in place. Maybe not necessarily from the league standpoint, Paul, but I think if you're a head coach, just like we were talking about this a few weeks ago, Bruce Arians, the Bucks head coach, was throwing out the idea of quarantining a quarterback. I'm right. not saying you got to quarantine a coach. Don't misinterpret my words, but I think if you're an offensive coordinator and you're the defensive coordinator, this year may be more important than any other year. I may want to take my defensive line coach to the side, my linebackers coach, and say, guys, I think you should just pay attention in terms of how I call a game, where I go to a specific call during mm -hmm. a game, because mm -hmm. God forbid I get sick, you may be thrown into a position that you've never had experience in, and it's going to be baptism by fire. So I think there needs to be a little bit more coaching of coaches, I guess, what I'm saying this year, maybe more so than we've seen in the past. I think that's a great point, Lance, and I'll give you another question. Would you want your offensive and defensive coordinators who call the plays to be on the sideline? Or would you rather have them upstairs in the booth to keep them away from the field of play, which would, of course, lessen their chances of contracting something? Well, I think that's, once again, a very good question. But you're still on top of other coaches and perhaps executives when you're up in the booth, and it's a much smaller space and there's not fresh air. Not to say I'm a medical expert, but I could give you a lot well, of you cons. could open the window. You could open the window up you there. You could, in the box. but but I, I would well, say not all I, of them open though. That's true too. That's fair. Well, but then your papers are going to move around. Yeah, and it's very windy. I don't know. You see, I Paul? mean, you, okay, there, there there are going to be a lot of bodies and a lot of sweat flowing on the sideline too. I I don't know. It's just something I think that somebody's got to ask yeah. and somebody's got to think about. Well, I, I think, once again, it's a very valid question. I'm not taking away the validity. I just would say I think people would come up with other cons in terms of having them in the booth. And here's the other thing. Here's the other aspect of that. See, there's another example that, Paul, you and I were getting into this last week. You bring up one topic, it then raises 10 more mm -hmm. questions. And then from those 10 questions, you get five more subsettings from each question. But anyway, getting back you to know, the Lance, subject You know, Lance, sometimes we agree a heck of a lot more than people think we do.
That's fair. I don't know if I want to necessarily agree with that narrative, but maybe I'll give you a slight proudy point on that front, okay? Now you're going off to a wavelength I'm not very comfortable addressing here, Paul. I don't want to give you too much credit. But you know there are a number of coaches, in all seriousness, who are OCs and DCs. Some of them are comfortable being on the sideline, right, Paul? And some of them are not comfortable being up in the booth. So then if you're a head coach, you have to ask yourself, okay, is the priority, and once again, I am not, dumbing down the seriousness of this virus, okay? So don't misinterpret my words. But what I'm saying is, guys understand job security is a big part of this, Paul, right? We can't be naive. And Mm -hmm. if a coach has a conversation with his OC and he says, hey, I understand the safety protocols, but Joe, I'm more comfortable seeing the field and calling the plays from being down on the field. I do not want to be up in the booth regardless of whether or not that protects me more. So then you get into the moral, ethical, and safety grounds and winning and loss grounds, Paul. And then how do you make a decision according to that? I think, once again, it's a lot more complicated than we sometimes lay it out to be. Well, there were really four questions that you have to ask before you decide the answer to that generic question. Number one is how does the head coach feel about having one of his coordinators upstairs number two how does the coordinator feel about it number three how does the quarterback feel about it because the starting quarterback may want that guy downstairs and then the other one quite honestly and i i know you know this one probably is the least of the four concerns but i remember kevin gilbride would always tell me that he had somebody upstairs in the press box who he trusted up in the assistant coach's booth who could occasionally pipe down some stuff to him that, you know, he knew he could rely on him if he wanted to bounce something off of him before he was able to call a play. And maybe, you know, Coach Coughlin then had the veto power. Well, you've got to know then, as the coordinator, if you're on the sideline, all right, you've got to know that you've got somebody upstairs as well that you're comfortable with, that you can trust who you believe can do that job. Because there are some coordinators who would rather be upstairs because they see the sky view and they think that's their best way to go. And now if it's decided for all of the other reasons he's going to be downstairs, well, he better trust the guy who's going to be up there helping him. Because that's the extra set of eyes, the big brother type of feel, always watching. But you brought up another interesting aspect in terms of the quarterback. Because you're right, if you ask some quarterbacks, they'll say, hey, I want the guy on the sideline because, Paul, when the defense goes out there, I want to be able to look at the guy in the eye and have Mm -hmm. a much more in-depth conversation as opposed to picking up the phone and you know trying to have an in-depth conversation. So it's also not just the comfort level of the coordinator – But specifically, if you're talking about the OC, if it's much easier to sit the guys down on the bench, you know, we always see that camera angle, right? The defense is out on the field. The OC is down on a knee, and he's talking to the quarterback, the offensive lineman, the running backs, the wide receiver. Hey, it's much easier, Paul, to get your point across, right? You look the guys in the eye, and you tell them, hey— this is how the play's supposed to be run. No ands, ifs, or buts, as opposed to trying to get that message across in a game environment over the phone. Let's not be naive. There are different dynamics in terms of how we get messages across. So those things also would have to be worked out, and those conversations would have to be had. Now, if you ask a lot of teams, they may be saying, hey, guys, I mean, we got a laundry list of other topics and issues we got to work out, such as testing players and making sure that they remain healthy. The last thing we're worried about is the comfort level of the OC. And once again, I would respect that opinion. But when you get into week three and week four, and maybe the comfort level is at a point where they've overcome the testing hurdles and so forth, teams are going to have to start thinking about these topics, Paul, that we're discussing right now. So it may not seem right now as the number one priority, and I would agree with that. It's not. 
But once you get into the heart and soul of a season, these little nuances are the uh, big differences between teams that are getting to the playoffs and teams that are on the outside looking at Lance, now you also have part of the reason why the league wants to have preseason games. Yeah. They want to be able to go through a dry run. They want to be able to go through the game they experience before the games count so that you can go through all of these logistics. Listen, I've been on the sidelines enough of times over the course of my career. Oh, you have. And I'm going to tell you one thing right now. Steve Spagnuolo is an outstanding defensive coordinator. I love the guy. I respect the guy. I have watched him work with, with just so much uh, admiration on the sidelines and on that bench. If you told him he had to call his defenses from the press box, you would be chopping his legs off. You would be taking a tremendous amount of his value and throwing it in the trash can. Steve Spagnuolo is the kind of defensive coordinator who has to be on the sidelines to be able to do what he does best. And so these are the very questions that the league and the teams would like to try to sort through by having at least a preseason game, if not two. Well, and you and I have had conversations before we wrap up here. I'm in agreement with you. I think there's a great deal of value to having at least one preseason game, if that's all they can agree upon. But from the conversations I've had over recent days on the air specifically with specific player reps on the NFLPA Executive Council, their stance is pretty much hardcore, where they absolutely do not want preseason games. They don't think it's worth the health risk. And I've countered, Paul, with the very points that you and I have been going back and said, well, guys, wait a minute. Isn't there a benefit to go through the logistics of a game day experience, what you'd have to go through in terms of travel because you guys are creatures of habit, creatures of routine. And Paul, the response I get is, Lance, very fair point, don't disagree with you, still not worth the health risk. So as it stands right now, if you were to ask me, and I'm not a betting man, I would say it's going to be very difficult to convince the players at this point to get a preseason game in. Well, I will say this in closing, Lance, and I know we're running out of time, so I'll just wrap it up quickly. I will say this. If there is no preseason football this year and the league does anticipate going through with a full season, I anticipate there will be some type of scrimmage that every team will have during which they will try to replicate the game day experience because I don't think anybody is going to be comfortable going into the season cold without any idea of what to expect with the new regulations in place. I'm in agreement with you. I echo your sentiments. And I would say by scrimmage, I would be okay with even if it's an intra-squad scrimmage in mm-hmm. terms of you break your own team up and you treat one half as the road team Whatever and you one have half to do. as the home. Whatever you have to do. Yeah. I cannot see them going in blindly. I just can't. Well, that is going to wrap up Monday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the phone calls. We'll try to address some of your questions and tweets off the air, but continue to interact with us on Twitter at Lance Meadow. One word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants, W-F-A-N. And you can also submit your questions at Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. A reminder, we are back up and running live each and every weekday at noon Eastern. So... Stay tuned for more live programming. We're going to continue our previews of team opponents for the Giants this year. We got three left, and that is just the NFC East, so stay tuned for that. Paul, always enjoy the back and forth. Look forward to doing it again later this week. You got it, Lance. We'll talk to you. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Monday. Stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.